In November of 1971, Anatoly Dobrynin, the longtime Soviet ambassador to the United States, wanted to buy a house. He had earned his stripes and a certain reserved degree of trust in the first year of his tenure, serving as the ambassador during the Cuban Missile Crisis and as a main actor in resolving that conflict. Now, nine years later, Dobrynin, along with the National Security Advisor and soon-to-be simultaneous Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, had become inextricably linked as two ends of the conduit that allowed for direct communication between Washington and Moscow. Dobrynin would continue as Soviet ambassador until 1986, a 24-year tenure as an essential actor in Soviet diplomacy. But already in 1971, it was clear that he wasn't going anywhere, and his relationship with Kissinger was more than cordial. It was deeply familiar. And so Anatoly Dobrynin wanted to buy a house. To be honest, a residence. Or, to be more clear, he had set out in the mid-1960s to find a supplemental embassy building. Maybe an entire replacement for the embassy. official residence of the Soviet ambassador to the United States had been George Pullman House on 16th Street Northwest in Washington. This was a residence and an administrative headquarters for the Soviet diplomatic presence in Washington, D.C. Very soon after Dobrynin moved in, it became clear that the old Beaux-Arts-style mansion built in 1910 wasn't up to the task of housing the diplomatic mission of a superpower. Personally, Dobrynin struggled with the throttle hold on his life imposed by suspicion and government controls. In his autobiography, he wrote that he tried his best to break out of these constraints. On the broad, global stage, as well as on the personal level, and so Dobrynin made it something of a personal mission to at least give himself some room to work. And so after the Soviet government allocated the funds, reluctantly, the search for a new residence began. The first obstacle being that an existing structure could not be trusted. George Pullman House had been in the possession of the Soviet Union from the start, and Imperial Russia before that permanently occupied from the days long before electronic surveillance. But now, a new structure would need to be built from the ground up to confirm to the satisfaction of the Soviets that there was no nefarious bugging or sabotage. With that said, the search then was not for some grand old mansion, 
but for land on which to build a modern structure. It was clear that no one wanted the Soviet Union in their backyards. As de Brennan writes in his autobiography, they protested that they would be forced to live in the vicinity of Soviets who were supposed to surround their embassy with barbed wire and armed guards and whose trained dogs would savage their children. Of course, their cause wasn't really helped by John F. Kennedy's tipsy after-dinner talk. What do I mean by that? After the Vienna summit with Khrushchev in 1961, President Kennedy took a vacation in Florida and threw a dinner party in Palm Beach. Sometime during the dinner, he announced that the Soviets had assembled an entire nuclear weapon out of parts sent by diplomatic pouch and installed it in the embassy in Washington. If war breaks out, he said, they push the button and destroy Washington. That story was heard firsthand by the journalist and friend Hugh Sidney, who was at the Palm Springs dinner that night. He wasn't sure how true it was, and to be clear, it was not true. Probably. And so he decided not to publish it at the time. But we really can't know how widely the rumor traveled after that. Because it was among at least a few such stories that moved through Washington circles that year. It was the kind of thing that Dobrynin was up against in his search for property and a new residence. In one instance, the real estate agency and lawyers retained by the Soviet Union had to sue the neighborhood association that opposed the purchase. I don't know about you, but if I were the president of a neighborhood association being sued by the Soviet Union in the 1960s, I might have a serious think about my life choices and immediate vacation options. Rural Mexico comes to mind. But in that case, the location was right and the price was right, and Brennan thought the matter might be settled. The Soviets actually won the suit in the lower court, but it was overturned on appeal. That didn't just happen once, but twice. So Anatoly Dobrynin kept looking for a house. In another instance, a beautiful and sprawling plot on the Potomac and adjacent to George Washington's Mount Vernon was located. That is a national park, obviously. It was owned by a World War II naval officer who had been trying to sell the property to the National Park Service for years. To the relief of the Soviets, he had no neighbors to fight the sale, and according to Dobrynin, the man had no hostile feelings toward the Soviet Union. The negotiations with the National Park Service had dragged on and on because of the usual bureaucratic pace of things and because the agency claimed 
that they just couldn't come up with the money. But when the owner of the land informed the Park Service that he intended to sell to the Soviets for a new embassy building, the money materialized, as de Brennan writes, as if by magic. And that brings us to that November in 1971 and up the Potomac to the north of D.C. to an unincorporated community called McLean in Fairfax, Virginia. The plot of land was spacious and wooded, adjacent to the water right at the Little Falls Dam, which is the weir that cuts across Snake Island. It was perfect. The property dealer had been recommended by the U.S. State Department, and that is why de Brennan was particularly confused when he was told by the State Department that the sale couldn't be approved. The next day, on a call with his diplomatic partner, Henry Kissinger, de Brennan brought the subject up. The call was at the very end of the business day, at the very end of the business week. 4.45 p.m. Friday, November 19, 1971. They both had very interesting accents that I won't attempt here, but this is from the transcribed call. Dobrynin said, I have to go in 15 minutes, but two points, rather three, about my residence. A note for you history buffs, the other two points were about peace talks with the Vietnamese and a treaty about the use of the moon. But for our purposes, Dobrynin went on, quote, Today, on a low level, we were told without explanation that the State Department couldn't approve it. Kissinger asked for the address of the property. 1101 Crest Lane, McLean, Virginia. Kissinger said, until yesterday, I didn't know you were looking at a residence. This was, incidentally, probably generally untrue. The Kennedy and Johnson administrations had tried and failed to lend their influence to each of the court battles and help the search for the new residence, which had been going on for years at this point, almost a decade. Dobrynin said, It was a dealer recommended by the State Department, I would like, on a personal basis, for you to look at it, if possible. I would like to ask it as a personal favor. The conversation went on, and at its close, Dobrynin brought the matter up one last time. He said, and you'll look into the matter about my house? Kissinger said, I will. If it is a bureaucratic boondoggle, I will take care of it. Henry Kissinger did look into it, as promised. But the snag was more than a bureaucratic boondoggle, as he put it. It so happened that the property in McLean had a very important neighbor that complained directly to the State Department, which shut down the sale the next day. Not even Henry Kissinger's connections could overcome the objections of that particular noisy neighbor. McLean 
is made up of three other unincorporated communities. Lewinsville, West McLean, and one that might seem very familiar to you, Langley. You see, the land for the new Soviet embassy was about 3,200 feet, not quite a kilometer, from the front door of the CIA. Not even Henry Kissinger could save the deal when the CIA offered the State Department what can only be described as a hard no. And so it was back to the property search for Anatoly Dobrynin. But after years of looking and failing to find a location, it was clear that the search would go on and on and on. There hadn't been any progress, even with the help of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And so finally, the Nixon administration offered to provide a site on federal land. That land would be located on Mount Alto, perhaps the worst conceivable spot from the standpoint of national security. Why, you ask? Mount Alto is the third highest point in the District of Columbia. From it, and even more so, from the roof of whatever concrete monument to Soviet architecture they chose to build, the new embassy building would have, did have, and does have today a direct visual line of sight to the Capitol, the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. It was, perhaps one of the happiest signals intelligence accidents ever to befall the Soviet Union. And the United States seemed to be entirely oblivious to it. The 85-year lease was granted at a time when the capacities of Soviet surveillance technology and its potential for future development were both uncertain. Long after the fact, the intelligence community railed against the State Department for not consulting them on the concession. But we know that the CIA was perfectly aware of the Soviets' property development intentions in their own backyard. So I find it hard to believe that the FBI, CIA, and NSA woke up one morning to find that the deal was done without a chance for comment. That's what they would have you believe after the fact, however. But once construction started, the potential for nefarious Soviet activities became a point of contention and concern in the intelligence community and in the public sphere. As the years went by and surveillance technologies developed, the location of the Soviet embassy on Mount Alto appeared to be a real problem. The first buildings on the compound were finished in 1979, and the tallest, the administrative building, was finished in 1985, a technological eternity after the land was first signed over to the Soviet Union with an agreement in 1969. At this point, various pundits were in a frothy rage about the complete abdication of responsibility by the federal government 
for essentially providing the Soviets an eagle's eye view on the nation's most closely guarded secrets. And what exactly did those pundits have in mind? Well, for one, microwave transmission interception. This would leave about 70% of all telephone traffic in the capital open to interception by the embassy at Mount Alto. A far greater concern was the quickly evolving laser microphone technology. What in 1971 was a science fiction and in 1985 was extremely high-tech James Bond equipment, but real, can today be built in your home workshop for under $100. But your acoustic quality might vary. A laser microphone sends out a laser that bounces off of a window and returns to a sensor. A conversation in the room will vibrate the glass, which will sort of rattle the laser, and the receiving end can translate that back into sound vibration. For a visual on why this was a stunning security breach, I will refer you to Google Maps. But until you can venture over there, let me describe again those lines of sight to the Capitol, the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department, and any other building with windows facing to the north or northwest. Add to that any other surveillance technologies that might emerge in the immediate future, real or imagined, and it was an unacceptable state of affairs. But the suspicions of Soviet eavesdropping were not unfounded or without precedent. A notably clumsy early attempt is today referred to as the Moscow Signal. From 1953 to 1976, a low-power microwave signal was beamed into the west side of the embassy in Moscow between the third and eighth floors from a nearby apartment building. No one really knows what the beam was intended to do, and despite some interesting theories about mind control, it was probably used to switch on and off listening devices. In early 1974, the Soviet Union began construction on a 19-story apartment building in the quiet neighborhood of Riverdale in the Bronx. The story of that building is interesting in its own right, then and today. The Soviet mission to the United Nations needed apartments and a school for families. The original sprawling compound proved to be too expensive, and so they turned to a U.S. architectural firm to find a cheaper way. It was cheaper, and its construction method was unusual. All of the workers and materials were imported from the Soviet Union to eliminate the chance that U.S. intelligence could implant listening equipment. Two concrete masts were put up, the full 19 stories, and each steel deck floor was assembled at the base, at ground level, and mechanically lifted to the top. The entire tower 
was built from the top down. One article on the construction likened it to a twin popsicle. There was great suspicion of what went on in the top floors of the tower from the outset, prefiguring some of the surveillance worries that would come into play again at Mount Alto. In 1985, the venerable columnist William Sapphire commented, quote, Washington is beginning to get the feeling long held by New Yorkers surveyed from a tower in Riverdale. Those worries were, of course, well-founded. In 1978, an advisor to the Soviet foreign ministry, who actually lived in the building, defected to the U.S. Not just an advisor. His name was Arkady Shevchenko. He was the highest-ranking Soviet official ever to defect to the United States during the Cold War. In his book, Breaking with Moscow, he wrote, quote, the apartment building in Riverdale bristled with antennas for listening to American conversations. But that's not all. Shevchenko also confirmed the long-standing suspicion that the Soviet country retreat at Glen Cove, New York, was also a giant spying ear. He wrote, When I first came to the United States in 1958, there were three or four KGB communications technicians and their gear sharing the former servants' quarters in the attic. By 1973, the specialists intercepting radio signals numbered at least a dozen, and they had taken over the whole floor. So it wasn't paranoia. It was a very real Soviet pursuit that certainly would have gone on at the new embassy at Mount Alto, but with a stunningly improved view. Let me go over to the American side of this story for a moment, because, of course, there are always two sides to any Cold War story. Actually, three, but we'll leave the third world out of it for now. Nothing positive was accomplished between the U.S. and the USSR without at least the illusion of balance and reciprocity. In 1953, the U.S. Embassy staff in Moscow moved into a building on what is now named Novinskaya Boulevard. The conditions, said the State Department, were cramped, inefficient, and unsafe. The U.S. pushed for a new building in the 1960s, which worked well because the Soviets in Washington felt that they needed the same room for expansion. On May 16, 1969, an agreement was signed between the two called Agreement for the Exchange of Sites. After the long search around Washington resulted in the new site at Mount Alto, the Americans in Moscow were offered, and accepted, 10 acres to expand behind the existing embassy. The negotiations that followed might seem like the biggest mess of bureaucratic nonsense imaginable in all of architecture and construction. But trust me, it's important for what happens after that. The U.S. proposed a two-stage process to be carried out simultaneously on both embassy sites. 
The host country would furnish materials and perform all of the basic site, foundation, and structural work. The owner would do everything else using workers from the host country and source of choice for the materials. Each of the new buildings in Moscow and Washington, respectively, would be eight stories tall and would be finished inside, above the fourth floor, by the owner's choice of labor and material. Does that make sense? That means that in Moscow, the building would be built by Russians with Russian material, but above the fourth floor, it would be finished by imported Americans with imported American material. The same in Washington, but reversed. The U.S. knew that the Soviets would be using their top floors for spying, and the Soviets knew that the U.S. knew that, and knew that the U.S. would be using their top floors for spying, and that all seemed fairly even to everyone involved, and the agreement was signed in 1972. The U.S. laid the cornerstone of the new office building in September 1979. And that's right, it took three years to agree on how many floors each would need for spying in their respective new embassies, and seven years to start building them. It is truly a wonder that anything constructive of any kind was ever accomplished between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So, back to Mount Alto. Now under construction at this point in our story, U.S. intelligence was just itching to figure out a way to stick it to those Ruskies. And thus, Operation Monopoly was born. The plan was simple enough. It would involve digging a secret tunnel under the new Soviet embassy. The FBI bought a house across from the construction site at 2619 Wisconsin Avenue. Surely, to the amusement of the Soviets, they cut down the trees in the front yard, installed security cameras in the front windows, and took up positions for a 24-hour-a-day stakeout. In the basement, work began on a well-appointed tunnel. Probably. It isn't a certainty that the tunnel started from the FBI stakeout house, but it's likely enough. The tunnel was a boondoggle. It was a technical failure because the equipment installed in the tunnel under the new embassy just couldn't pick anything up. This was because the Soviets had installed very effective electronic countermeasures. A bigger, though simpler, problem was that the FBI simply didn't know where it was in relation to the various rooms in the building. With the millions upon millions spent on the tunnel, they never figured out how to tell the difference between a meeting room and a storage closet. But the biggest issue with the tunnel's effectiveness, the FBI didn't even know about. One of their own, Robert Hansen, had been selling secrets to the KGB since 1979 and had divulged the existence of the embassy tunnel. The FBI abandoned the effort and sealed the tunnel in the 1990s. 
In the final analysis, it generated absolutely no useful intelligence. As the construction of both new embassies continued, back in Moscow, Soviet construction workers were pouring foundations of solid Soviet concrete and raising the new structure with pillars of strong Soviet steel. It's just that some of those Soviet workers also happened to be officers in the KGB. And the concrete and steel that made up the supports of the new U.S. Embassy building had been riddled with listening devices. Not a floor or a room had been left unbugged. When the effort was discovered, finally in 1985, the U.S. was outraged, yes, but also sort of put out. After all of the time and effort, it would be absolutely impossible to use the new building for anything meaningful or useful. All classified work was moved back to the old building, and the new structure sat empty and abandoned. Back in Washington, the retribution was instantaneous. The Soviets were barred from occupying their new embassy by congressional decree, and mutual legal sniping commenced. The Americans demanded compensation from the Soviet government for a building that might never be able to be used for its intended purpose. The Soviets claimed that similar bugging had been embedded in their own new Mount Alto facility. And from 1985, the fight went on and on and on. In the meantime, Anatoly Dobrynin, the longtime ambassador to the United States and point man for this entire multi-decade process, returned to Moscow. After 24 years in Washington, Dobrynin left in May 1986. Though some of the apartments and office space on the new Soviet compound were occupied and had been since 1979, the main structure was left in limbo, for a few years anyway. Its final disposition was entirely dependent on the resolution of the situation on the American embassy compound. So what was to be done? With a new office building that was informally referred to as the Great Antenna, transmitting every conversation and toilet flush in the new U.S. Embassy back to the KGB. The Republican congressman from Texas said of it at the time, it's nothing but an eight-story microphone plugged into the Politburo. Things chugged along. It's really unclear how long the back and forth would have gone had geopolitical events not put the dispute into perspective and revealed it for being both petty and unnecessary. Because there, in the dying light of the Soviet Union, something truly extraordinary happened. We'll take this from another Texas political legend, the last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Robert Strauss. In the final months of the existence of the Soviet Union, Strauss met with Vadim Bakatin, the last chairman of the KGB, and the knower of all secrets. To the slack-jawed shock and amazement of the American ambassador, 
The head of the KGB provided him with the design and location of every listening device in the new embassy building. It was, Bakatin said, in the interest of openness, or glasnost being the buzzword of the day. Strauss commented, quote, This is the most amazing thing that's happened in my life. At a lunch with Strauss soon after the revelation, Anatoly Dobrynin asked, Well, what about returning the favor? Suggesting that an equal exchange could get both embassies up and running. Strauss laughed at the suggestion. In fact, the U.S. wasn't even willing to trust the disclosure of the bugs. Honestly, that's a ridiculous thing for me to say. When the head of the KGB says, here, no more secrets, you really just have to take that with a shot of vodka and an old saying, I know. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, well, you, you can't get fooled again. The U.S. government wasn't about to be fooled. At a cost of $240 million, the new embassy building was taken apart, brick by brick. The U.S. Congress authorized Operation Top Hat, a plan to, as you might imagine, redesign the top of the embassy building. Not so much redesign. The top two floors of the eight-story embassy were demolished, down to the sixth floor. Then four new floors, plus a penthouse, were built on top, all with imported American workers and stone from Minnesota. A high-security transitional section was added to the fifth floor, and the rest of the building was, as they said, rehabilitated, meaning gutted and searched for listening devices. Demolition began in January 1997, and new construction commenced in September. The facility, romantically and whimsically named the New Office Building, was certified safe and secure and ready for occupancy in May 2000. The Soviet embassy in Washington didn't require the kind of deconstruction and reconstruction that the American embassy did. Soviet countermeasures prevented any existing listening devices from working, and Robert Hansen had told the Soviets about the FBI tunnel long before. And yet, the Soviets were never able to move into their new facility, because the Soviet Union simply ceased to be. Negotiations with the Russian Federation in those early days were smoother, though, and the Russians were able to move their diplomatic mission into the Mount Alto compound in 1994. Anatoly Dobrynin had begun his search for a new house, a new diplomatic residence, and what became an entirely new embassy compound in the days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Even by bureaucratic standards, the wheels of the project moved slowly, bogging down at every new development, change of leadership, or suspicion of a security breach. But this story does have closure, because in 1994, Anatoly Dobrynin returned to Washington on a personal visit, preparing his autobiography. 
and he was finally able to stay at the new embassy, at the new home for the Soviet and now Russian diplomatic mission, more than 30 years after he had started looking for a new site. This episode of the Cold War Vault was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. The idea for the show was prompted by telephone transcripts from the Digital National Security Archive, an extremely expensive database to which I no longer have access. So if you'd like to support the show, please take a look at the Patreon page. And that's not charity either. There will be bonus content and some other goodies. Liking and sharing on Facebook helps to spread the word, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts helps me to find sponsors. And those good deeds are free. Remember, when looking for property, location, 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 and a direct line of sight to the White House. Until next time. <laughs>